you have your Bibles, I'd invite you to turn them to Acts chapter 18, Acts 18. As you make your way there, uh, we're going to be looking at Acts 18, verses 18, all the way through 19, verses, uh, verse 20. Uh, a few things. If you're visiting with us, uh, we, pre- we tend to preach through books of the Bible, and so we are making our way through Acts. Uh, Zach will finish us up before we take a break from Acts next week, and we'll be uh, moving into our Advent series. So just kind of know you're dropping in, and we've already been working through Acts. But two things about the text that we're reading today. First, you'll notice right there in verse 18 that it says, At Sincrea, Paul had cut his hair, for he was under a vow. We think that this is in response to God's kindness to him in Jesus, where Jesus actually shows up in a vision and tells Paul in Corinth to be still. No one will harm you. We think what's happening there is that Paul may have taken a Nazarite vow to not cut his hair in response to that beautiful grace of kindness to him. And now that uh, that vow is done, he's cutting it. So that's the first thing to note. I won't spend a whole lot of time on it. But I'll actually stop our reading this morning at verse 20 and won't read 21 through 40, even though I'll allude to what's happening there. What's happening there is that Ephesus, uh, one of the main gods worshipped in Ephesus, was a goddess by the name of Artemis. And in light of some things that happened in the verses prior, there's this riot, there's this revolt, there's this intended persecution that the silversmiths, those who made the idols for Artemis, that they wanted to bring some charges against Paul and his team for preaching the gospel. And an unknown town clerk basically steps in and quiets that and quells uh, that potential for harm. So I won't read that section, but that's what's happening there. This is God's word, verse 18 of chapter 18. And after this, Paul stayed many days longer and then took leave of the brothers and sisters. And he set sail for Syria and with him Priscilla and Aquila. At Sincrea, he had cut his hair for he was under a vow. And they came to Ephesus and he left them there. But he himself went into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. When they asked him to stay for a longer period, he declined But on taking leave of them, he said, I will return to you if God wills. And he, by himself, presumably, set sail from Ephesus. When he had landed at Caesarea, he went up and greeted the church, presumably in Jerusalem. And then he went down to Antioch. After spending some time there, he departed and went from one place to the next through the region of Galatia and Phrygia, strengthening all the disciples. Now a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was an eloquent man, competent in the scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he knew only the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue, but when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. And when he wished to cross to Achaia, the brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. When he arrived, he greatly helped those who through grace had believed, for he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the scriptures that the Christ was Jesus. And it happened while Apollos was in Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. There he found some disciples, and he said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, no, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, unto what then were you baptized? They said, unto John's baptism. 
And Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him, that is Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. There were about 12 men in all. And Paul entered the synagogue, and for three months he spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation, he withdrew from them and took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. This continued for two years, so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul, so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick, and their diseases left them, and the evil spirits came out of them. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by Jesus, whom Paul proclaims. Seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this, but the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and Paul I recognize, but who are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them, mastered all of them, and overpowered them so that they fled out of the house naked and wounded. And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, and fear fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. Also, many of those who were now believers came, confessing and divulging their practices. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and to prevail mightily. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, we love your word, and we need your spirit to help us to understand it. Jesus reminds us that all of the Bible is about him. And so, Father, I pray that as we examine and mind uh, these truths here, that we would indeed see Jesus this morning. Jesus does nothing of his own. He does what he sees and hears from the Father, all that the Father gifts to him will hear his voice and they will recognize him. He will give his spirit to his people that he himself will make his dwelling in us. And so we come before you, our triune God, asking for grace, asking for insight, asking for power, asking for encouragement from your word. Build us up, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I want us this morning to think about two potential threats to God's church and how the church's God neutralizes those threats. There's a story of a man who had two daughters. One daughter was almost two and the other one was a couple of months old. And then it happened. He had to leave them. If his leaving would prove to be difficult for the first daughter, it would be catastrophic for the second one. She was nowhere near being ready to chew solid food or stand or walk or talk. Without some outside intervention, these two girls would certainly die. What two-year-old can work and protect and cook? 
we know how this story will end if left unattended. Two daughters found dead, the two-year-old holding her month-old daughter. What's worse is that in this particular city, there is an evil person who preys on children. He kidnaps the vulnerable. These children have no chance at survival. They are no match for the evil person. They are no match for the laws of nature. I'm not talking about real daughters. I'm talking about the church, the church of Corinth and the church of Ephesus. When these events take place, the church of Corinth is probably two years old by now. And the church of Ephesus is a few months. And their father leaves them. You can see it. Like, look at the language right there in verse 20. He goes to Ephesus and they asked him to stay for a longer period, but he declined. But on taking leave of them, he said, I will return to you if God wills. And he left. Now think about this. These are two young churches. Corinth, a year and a half, maybe two. Ephesus, a couple of months old. And their father, who planted them, leaves. This is catastrophe if Paul is the ultimate one building the church. It is not catastrophe if Jesus is building his church. You see, somewhere in the Bible, Jesus says, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. The gates of hell prevailing or trying to prevail reminds us that the church will be threatened. Jesus saying, I will build it, says that he will thwart all threats. He is stronger than the gates of hell. And that's what we see here, that these two, these two churches are threatened they're threatened by the departure of Paul, who's the planter, and the chaos that incurs without godly leaders. There's a saying that sheep without a shepherd, you call them lunch. And that's exactly what happens in our passage, that as soon as Paul leaves in verse 28, that the Jews come in into Corinth to infiltrate the church and to steer them away from Jesus. So there's a danger, there's a threat. What's going to happen to those churches without the Apostle Paul there? The other danger or threat is the demonic strongholds that are over and competing for allegiance in Ephesus. And I want to show you how Jesus looks at these threats and he does something about it. That his churches will stand. And this is gospel. This is good news that the Jesus who saves his church will fight for her. He will protect her. He will keep her. He will persevere her. He will make sure that all who are his will make it home and will endure to the end. And that's what you see him doing here. Now, what, is, what does this have to do with us? Pastors die. We die in car accidents, and we get cancer. And deacons relocate to other cities. And elders get buried. And staff members take other calls. 
and those people in your life who discipled you, who have been pillars in your faith to help you mature in the Lord, you're going to go to their funeral one day. And the question remains, can you make it without them? And it's painful, right? Like, I don't want to minimize the pain here that in the next chapter, Paul is weeping with the Ephesian elders. He says, I won't see you again. In the next chapter after that, he says, why are you weeping? You're breaking my heart. Do you not know that I'm about to go and die? And so this is the pain and the agony of losing people you love who have been informative in your discipleship. But I'm here to tell you that Jesus provides. There's a demonic out there. Our our church is located in a place, in a real city, in a real state, in a real country with real idols, with real demonic forces and powers out there at work. And I want you to know that it does not matter what Satan does. It does not matter what strongholds are out there. They will not overcome the church because Jesus is on the throne. He provides. You need not be afraid of the darkness. And so I got two points today, not three. And here's the first point. The threat of departing leaders is neutralized. And I'm going to show you the two ways that Jesus neutralizes that threat. And then I'm going to show you the other threat, the demonic, the widespread demonic and how Jesus neutralizes that threat. So those are the two points, right? How does Jesus neutralize the threat of departing leaders? All right. I think what, 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 what's happening here is leaving dominates this. So, so look carefully at chapter 18, verses 18 through 23. I'm just going to kind of read through it quickly. 18, 18, Paul stayed many days longer and then he took leave. So you underline that, right? Look at verse 19. And then they came to Ephesus, but he left them there, right? So underline, he left them. Look at verse 21. But on t- taking leave of them, right? Look at the end of that. He set sail from Ephesus. Then he landed in Caesarea, and then he went up. That's a language for going up to Jerusalem. And then he left Jerusalem and went down to Antioch. He spent some time in Antioch. Then he left them. In other words, what Luke wants you to see in this section is that there is a lot of leaving going on. Paul is leaving Corinth, leaving Ephesus, leaving Jerusalem, leaving Antioch, leaving Phrygia. He is a man on the move. And guess what Luke wants us to see? In the midst of his leaving and departing, notice that language right there in verse 24. A man came. Whoa, now get this right. Paul leaves them, and all of a sudden, we, we are this, this Jew named Apollos is just kind of thrust into the narrative. We've not heard of Apollos anywhere else in the book of Acts until right here. And so providentially, as Paul leaves, this guy from northern Africa just kind of shows up out of nowhere and he goes to the place, to, to Ephesus of all places. And he's just not showing up. He's an eloquent man. He is competent in the scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord. He was fervent in spirit. He spoke and taught accurately. So look at the movement. Paul leaves Ephesus. Well, who's going to pastor Ephesus? Apollo shows up. Well, what about Corinth? 
What about that little church? They're young too. Who's going to go there? Did you look at what it says right there in verse 27? And when he wished to cross into Achaia, that's where Corinth is. That's act, look at 19.1, and it happened while Apollos was where? At Corinth. Now, this tracks perfectly with the book of 1 Corinthians, doesn't it? You remember when Paul says, what is this that I hear? That you follow Paul and you follow Apollos? He says, Paul, I, Paul, I planted and Apollos watered, but God gave the increase so that he who plants is nothing and he who waters is nothing, but God is everything. So what you see in Acts is actually dovetailing with the epistle where what happened when Paul left Ephesus, Apollos came. When Paul left Corinth, Apollos shows up. And this is a theme if you step out of scripture, think about these other passages. Don't turn there, just trust me. 1 Corinthians 16, when Timothy comes to you, Corinthians, see to it that you put him at ease, for he is doing the work of the Lord. 2 Corinthians 8, this is to the Corinthians again, but thanks be to God who put it in the heart of Titus, the same earnest care that I have for you. But he himself is very earnest to come and he is bringing with you the brother who is famous in all the churches for his preaching. Well, what about Ephesus? First Timothy 1, 3. Timothy, you remain in Ephesus and charge certain persons not to teach. Do you see what's happening? God is like the FAA, right? You, you land in an in a airport and you got them working those things. You land here, you go there, you stop, you taxi, you keep going. This is God. God is doing all of this for the sake of the church. Not one of you will be without a shepherd. Not one of you will be orphaned. I'm God. I rule it. I will make sure that I send shepherds after my own heart. This is how God neutralizes the threat of departing leaders. By having a powerhouse of younger leaders already being being groomed, already being discipled, already standing at attention and say, Master, where would you send me? Did y'all know this year the Atlanta Braves won the World Series? And did you know that 10 minutes from here, the double A affiliate of the Braves, it's the Mississippi Braves. And did you know over the last few years, 23 players on the Braves were right here in our backyard playing double-A ball before they were famous, before the world knew about them. They were playing and being coached so that when the big leagues called them, I'm here to tell you, Redeemer, that God has a double-A affiliate. And we don't see them right now. They aren't pastoring churches. They aren't missionaries yet. They aren't in seminary yet. And God is like, I got this, though. They coming. 
It's next man up in my kingdom. Your pastor may die in a car wreck. Your pastor may get cancer. Your staff may take other calls. But I'm here to tell you, fret not, Redeemer. I'm a really big God, and I'm grooming people behind you. Lord, may it be that our children will stand in this pulpit. May it be that our children will be elders and deacons and women ministry leaders and Sunday school teachers. May it be that our children, this is why it matters for us to love and disciple our children. This is why college ministry matters. This is why having a seminary in our city matters. It's why having interns in our church who relocate here to be poor, to study and serve you, it matters because the Lord Jesus is gifting and preparing and raising up the next generation of people who will stand and salute and be ready to serve King Jesus. So you fret not if something happens to me. He's a good God. Now, that's a gift. It's all gift. This is how he's stabilizing this church by sending a younger, competent, capable pastor. But he also stabilizes the church by keeping humble, courageous, older women and men tethered to her. So if it's young, gifted, gift. But it's also old women Men tethered to this church, gift. Now, look at what happened. Who did Paul leave in Ephesus? Y'all talk back. Who did he leave? He went there. It says he went with three people, and he left two people. There you go, Priscilla and Aquila. Now, why would he leave them in Ephesus? We met them last week in Corinth, right? They were the Jews who came from Rome who went to uh, Corinth because the emperor there were punishing Christians. And Paul moved in with them and he tent-maked with them. And he stayed there a year and a half with them. Now, he trusted them. I think they're older Christians. These events that are happening right here, we think are happening around AD 53. That's 20 years after Pentecost. In Pentecost, Acts 2.21, when the Holy Spirit was poured out in Jerusalem, Luke tells us that people from everywhere were there. And, And Jews and proselytes from Rome were there when the Holy Spirit was poured out. So 20 years prior to this, it is likely that either those who heard the gospel and and bowed the knee to Jesus were there, or that the gospel went back to Rome through those who heard it. Either way, we never read of them coming to faith through the ministry of Paul. They were already believers when Paul met them. So it makes sense to me that when Paul is birthing this church by the Spirit, that he says, hey, you older couple, I'm going to leave y'all because I trust you. And you've been walking with Jesus. And you got some gray hair on your head. Or you're losing it up top. That's what, that's what I want. I want you to stay, right? Now, why? why? Why do that? Look at what happened. Apollos was gifted and eloquent, but he was unorthodox. Look at what it says. Now, now, now notice the, the, the portrait of him. He's competent. He's eloquent. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord. He was fervent in spirit. He spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus. But he only knew of the baptism of John. Now, that's important. He's not a heretic. 
He's ignorant. And they didn't file a charge on presbytery, right? They didn't accuse him of being a heretic, right? He didn't know of the baptism of the Holy Spirit of Jesus. All he knew was like John's baptism. It's a baptism of repentance, one to ready yourself for the future Messiah. Turn from sin, right? And, and now that Jesus has come, that we're turning from sin and then turning to someone in faith, the object of our faith is the Lord Jesus. And as we turn from sin, bow the knee to Jesus, embrace him, we're baptizing him, and we are given the Holy Spirit. There's a part of his teaching that he didn't know. And what did this older couple do? Let me pull you to the side. Not blog about you. Not tweet about you. Not slander your name in public. We're mature enough to pull you to the side. And to instruct you more accurately. You see, if this was some young folks or some immature folks, we already know what they're going to do. They're going to make a podcast about you. Right? They're going to tweet about you. That is immaturity at its finest. The loving thing to do is man to man, woman to man, man to woman, come alongside this brother. Right? That's why you need some old folks in your life. Right? That's what they did. And you know what happened? When they corrected him, they actually wrote a letter for this brother. They wrote a letter and then sent him to Corinth. So he was reformed. He saw the light. He was humble enough to take correction. And they were humble enough to not embarrass him. Now, you see where I'm going? He, they're a gift to him. They're a gift to the church. And I love that they do it together. That Luke is showing us for the church to thrive. You need godly woman and man in community who love Jesus and who will serve in appropriate roles for the glory of Jesus. Our church is unhealthy if it's only men serving. We need the voices of our sisters. Our church is unhealthy if it's only women serving. We need the leadership of our men. And this is God's design from the beginning that man and woman together creating and cultivating and ruling and subduing their equal in essence, equal in personhood, equal in value. And yet what they do is different. Andreas Kostenberger says, we conclude that the book of Acts presents women and men in gospel partnership and women as active participants in the church's life and witness with men in roles of overall leadership in local churches. You hear what he's saying? God's going back to the beginning that, that Jesus doesn't just save your soul and give you a ticket to heaven. He is restoring all things back to the original design where man and woman work side by side in the service of our king. That's what he's doing. So here's a question. If you've been walking with Jesus 20 years, raise your hand. 
30 years, keep your hands up. 40 years, keep your hands up. 50 years, keep your hands up. 60 years, keep your hands up. See, I think Miss Beth won it back there. I think Miss Beth been walking with Jesus longer than all of us. And guess what? You need some Miss Beths in your life. And so I want to just stop and tell you with gray hair or no hair, you're a gift to us. And I salute you. And we need you in this body. Some of us are like little saplings and we bend over. And you're experienced. Every year you've walked with Jesus, you've added a ring to your tree and you're sturdy. And you've walked through hard times. You've buried children. You've learned how to fight in marriage. You found victory over sin. You've walked with wayward children. You've overcome strongholds. You've learned how to fight and forgive in marriage. You see the beauty of Jesus in scripture. Your hope has dawned and you see it brightly in ways that we won't. You're undeceived by the fleeting pleasures of this world. You are a gift to us. This is not the season in your life to pull away from the body. That's what Satan wants you to do. He wants you to feel useless and unneeded and out of touch. And that is a lie from the pit of hell. Paul says in Titus, older men are sound and self-control. Titus modeled this. Older women teach our younger women, right? That a gift to the body to help stabilize her, it's not just young, zealous, being raised up and reached leaders. It's also older people who will tether themselves to a body. When you have that going on, that's how Jesus cares for the church. And that is gift. Our last point, there's a threat of pervasive demonic and these are pervasive demonic strongholds and it's neutralized redeemer by power from on high now i got to speed this up a little bit because it took me a little long in the first service so i'm gonna give you the abbreviated version all right here's here's my theory and in first corinthians paul says that i fought with wild beasts in ephesus and he's not talking about animals the one place in scripture where Paul speaks of spiritual warfare in vivid language, guess what book it's in? Ephesians. It's in Ephesians where he says, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers and authorities and cosmic powers over present darkness, over spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. Now, take that and lay that on top of him being in Ephesus, 
What did he see and encounter in Ephesus? Two things that are disturbing. One is the worship of this goddess called Artemis. She was the goddess of fertility, of protection, of the hunt, and of healing. She, her temple was one of the seven wonders of the world in Paul's day. And people would travel far and wide to that city to get their household gods so that as they departed, they could worship her from wherever they are. That's the reason the silversmiths, Demetrius, that's the reason the city is in an uproar because you have her pagan worship up top, but you have beneath it all of the industry in the city that helped this happen. And so that's why they're angry. That's why they want to crucify these men. That's why they're irritated because if they come in and devalue her worship, then you bankrupt the everything else attached to it. So that's one stretch of demonic. You also have it over here with sorcery and witchcraft. Did you notice the amount of books that were burned? Luke tells us that the amount of it was 50,000 pieces of silver. In today's money, that's $8 million worth of books burned. Now, how does this work? It works like this. If you and your neighbor got into it and you don't like what she did, well, I'm going to go see a sorcerer. I'm going to get them to put a, I'm an incantation against you, put a spell against you, and I hope that you're numb. And because you're messing with the darkness and you're messing with satanic worship, it can happen. And so you do this, and now this woman over here that you got beef against, she can't feel her hand, and now she can't go to work. So what does she do? She goes to Demetrius and buys an idol, and now she starts to worship Artemis to get Artemis to bless her. And believe it or not, it can work because we're talking about dark magic and this mystical stuff. And then now, because you're not redeemed and you've given your trust into this false god, now you want revenge. And so you go see a sorcerer to put a spell on this lady. That's the madness that's going on in this city. That's why people are evil possessed, possessed by spirits and demons. That's why the handicapped and broken, please don't make the mistake and think that, that Satan is not real and that demonism isn't real. It's real. And then God does something. First of all, he sends Paul back. Paul had just told them, if the Lord's will, I'll come back. I don't think he knew if he was coming back or not. But he did. This was his last and final missionary journey. And he went back. They just didn't give him Paul back. He gave Paul power over the demonic. And that's what's important to see. Look at verse 11. And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul. This feels like something out of, of, out of a Benny Hinn video, right? So that even handkerchiefs or aprons that touch Paul's skin were carried away to the sick and their diseases left them and the evil spirits came out and then some itinerant Jewish exorcist. And this shows you that syncretism is real because a Jewish exorcist should not have been a word, two words used the same. The Jews were forbidden from doing this kind of stuff. And so what you're seeing that this dark stuff happening around them, it was infringing upon the people of God. 
that they tried to invoke the name of Jesus. Well, I adjure you by this Jesus, just like these sorcerers were doing these spells. They tried to treat Jesus that way. And then the evil spirit in the man, that it was seven of them, he beat the brakes off of them, y'all. This one man possessed by this one demonic spirit beat seven men down, beat them, stripped them down to their clothes, and they left out of their naked. And here's the Paul. All Paul got to do is this. I'm just going to pray some Jesus over you. You take this handkerchief over there and woof. Now, the city saw this. They saw this demon beat the brakes off of them. But they saw that Paul didn't even have to show up. Now, here's the thing. What should we emphasize here? Is this Paul? No. It says, and God was doing it. That's important because what God is doing is giving his church power from on high to tread on serpents and to not be afraid and to go to war and to do, do the miraculous in that city covered in darkness. Now, what does this mean for us? Maybe I need to like sweat, sweat on this rag a little bit and charge y'all $9.99, right? <laughs> and you might get healed, right? But maybe that's what we're supposed to do with it. No, if I ever do that, y'all fire me, right? <laughs> I don't think that's how we apply it, beloved. It's not every good thing we do, gift and miraculous. You see, I, if we understood human nature and our propensity to evil and our lacking power, though we have the desire to do good, then every good thing that we actually do is miracle. In a world around you that devalues marriage, it is miracle for you to stay. In a world that values idolatry and covetousness and accruing the most possessions, it is miracle that you're generous. In a world that gives you apps that let you hide your viewing history, it is miracle that you want to self put stuff on your computer to help you guard your eyes and your heart. That is miracle. In a world that wants you to live in isolation and not be in confessional community with the saints, it is miracle that you come out of your house and actually live transparent in the study of God's word and in a community of believers. It is miracle. It is miracle on Sundays when people view this as just an ordinary day to sleep in that you actually get up and you actually drive and you actually bow the knee to someone else. It is miracle. And what I think God would have us to do is that as we do these small miraculous good deeds, we start to live in a way that's different than the world around us. And the way the miracles are working in this section, it's a Lucan sandwich. Paul teaches in the hall of Tyrannus, and at the end of the miracle, the word of God is heard, and right in the middle is the miracle. And so what's happening here is that Paul is doing these mighty, powerful, cross-cultural, countercultural things through the power of God in the city 
that stand out and that when people begin to see this power, they begin to want to know, well, tell me, how are you doing this? In whose name are you doing this? Where did this come from? And Paul says, I'm glad you want to know. His name is Jesus, and he's done it for us on Calvary, and this is ours here and now. Beloved, I don't think we need handkerchiefs to go throw on people to make them get well. I think we have the ordinary day in and day out of following Jesus, and that is miraculous in this world. And when people see it, they want to know the source. When I was a kid, I worked at Super Kmart right on Beasley Road. It's not there. CarMax is right there. I was a utility clerk. I bagged groceries. I mopped up waste and spills. I went and got the little buggies. And I got my first check. And I cashed my first check. And it was $100. I had a $100 bill. And so I went to New Hope. That's where we were worshiping at the time. And I, I went there and I had my $100 bill. And I said, Mama and Daddy, I want to tithe. And I had my $100 bill. And I just kept putting, I was just messing with it. Because I ain't never had that kind of money like that. I earned. And so I'm in my pocket. I'm messing with it. All in Sunday school. All in church, right? And so at New Hope, right, you can... Um, so my, I, didn't, I didn't have a chance to get changed. And so my plan was when the collection plate came, yeah, some of y'all laughing. Y'all laughing because y'all already know. I said, ma'am, can you give me $90 back? And they would do it. They would actually take your $100, go take the money up, and come back to you with an envelope with your money in it. That was normal. And so I reached in my pocket, and my money wasn't there. And so, like, I'm, I'm wiggling in church. I'm, like, all under there, like, where is my $100? I'm lifting up a few cushions. And I couldn't find it. And I just had to say, never mind. About five days later, my next-door neighbor, who was a deacon at the church, came and knocked on the door. He said, young man, did you lose $100? And I said, yes. You know my first two questions? Where'd you find it? And who turned it in? I got to know. Who did not keep the money? Who gave it back to you? You got to tell me who they are. And he did. It was a couple that found it. You see how countercultural that was? I expected to never see that again. But when I saw it, tell me who. That's the way Paul's miracles are working. Tell me who. Who gave you this power? Who is freeing people? Who is forgiving people? Tell me about him. Redeemer, that is the power that God gives you to do the small, miraculous things in life. And the world is begging for who? And you tell them who the who is. And it's Jesus.
He's a good king. He loves his church. He will give her all she needs for life and godliness. Let's pray. Jesus, we sing about the victory that we have in the blood of Christ. And Father, sometimes we just sing those words. We don't really know what we're saying. But we are confessing, Lord, that because you loved us and have given your life for us, because your spirit indwells in us, because you are for us and never against us, you do empower your people to live victorious, God-pleasing, sanctified lives. Father, I pray that you will do that for this community. Bless your people and build us up, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.